Well, hello everyone, lovely to see you uh, here. Um, just a quick note before I um, get started uh, and we look at that passage. During the week, uh, we want to say um, we're grateful to God to you, uh, for those who prayed for the Reach Australia conference that we hosted here uh, this week. If you don't know anything about it, we had over a thousand pastors um, from Australia, across Australia, but not only that, from all over the world, kind of, if you include New Zealanders of the world... I said that at 8.30 and a Kiwi guy came up to me afterwards and said, Oi, bro, um, where are the wise men come from? I said, the wise men? He goes, you're the wise men. I said, they're from the east. He goes, yeah. What's the most eastly country in the world? And I said, I don't know. He goes, New Zealand, bro. And he got right in my face about it. I just, I couldn't actually understand a word he was saying. So I just, well, that's funny. However, it was great to even have Kiwis here. And we we had a wonderful time. Uh, uh, um, thinking through how to be uh, effectively used as pastors, as church leaders, uh, to reach uh, the lost in our nations and beyond. Um, Can I say how many people, not from this church, made comment on uh, just how many people from our church were serving during the week. So we're grateful to God for you, uh, and uh, we give great thanks um, for your example uh, to to so many of of, you. of service. Uh, Andrew uh, Heard, obviously our senior pastor, is heavily involved in Reach Australia. Um, and Andrew and Kathy are off overseas, actually, uh, I think from tomorrow or so, something like that, uh, for a little while. Uh, and they're going to be doing some uh, continuing that training and equipment of pastors over in the UK and uh, across Europe and also having some time uh, to catch their breath before continuing on. Uh, so a couple of things. Firstly, so keep them in your prayers, particularly for the, for the gospel work that they're going to be doing over there. But secondly, if you see Andrew in particular... Give him a big hug and kiss, okay? Just give him a big kiss today. He loves that, okay? <laughs> I saw someone doing it at 8.30. I thought, yeah. Yeah, so keep, keep going. Anyway, listen, um, let, me, let me start. Uh, happy Mother's Day. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. It's lovely to have you here. A special hello to you. If you're a mother, stepmother, grandmother, godmother, fairy god, whatever you are, and you're visiting here, someone from church has invited you. You're so loved. We love having you here. And happy Mother's Day to you if you're a son, a daughter, a, uh, a husband, and the mother, stepmother, whatever character has invited you here. If, if that's you, I want to say, <laughs> woo, you got reeled in, didn't you? Here you are, probably by bribery with, with lunch or something. Um, and now I'm here speaking for hours, and you're going to be hungry the whole time. I want to honour you and say, good on you. It's really great you're here. Um, I'm thrilled for you. I grew up, uh, and I didn't become a Christian until I was 28. Um, and my mum, who is here with us today, actually, by the way, back, way back there, um, my mum my used to pull that stuff on me all the time, so I feel for you. Okay, I really, we see you, and we love you. Uh, but we want to say we love you as well, no matter why you're here. But at the very least, you've earned a hash brown after this. So if you don't have lunch plans, go get some food, get some, some food from your mother. Um, today, we're going to be doing something a bit special. Um, we're stopping pressing pause on our uh, teaching series in the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to focus on the Bible's perspective of motherhood. Uh, two reasons we're doing that. One's obvious, it's Mother's Day. It's a good thing for us to do. But the second one um, is actually because if you survey the culture and community, the, the society that we live in around us, I think um, it doesn't take too much for us to realise that we are in the middle of a motherhood crisis. Um, society's in a mess when it comes to mothers. Let me put it like this. I don't think it's ever been harder to be a mum. Now, grandmas, I know it was hard for you too. I'm not saying it wasn't hard. Great-grandmas, I know it was hard. Toilets, outdoors, all that kind of stuff. But I want to suggest that there's a whole bunch of new pressures, um, new difficulties, new, new um, 
struggles that modern mothers have to face, which, well, it has huge consequences. Uh, the pressure that is put on modern mothers is just enormous. And we see the consequences in a range of ways, but particularly when it comes to identity. Identity. Who are, who, who are you as a mum? What does it mean? Am I, am the pressure to go back to work, the pressure to stay at home, the, the comparison continually. Um, a recent survey in the United States um, post-pandemic said that even though it might seem like business as usual for mums around the world, it's actually anything but. Here are some statistics. 57% of mothers say that they feel like they're failures as mothers. Um, 57%. Um, 89% of stay-at-home mums feel guilty and ashamed about not working and contributing financially to the household. 92% of mothers with, with paid employment feel guilty and ashamed about not being home with their kids more. It's like a pincer movement of guilt. Uh, guilt saturation for mums. But we want to say this morning that it doesn't have to be this way. It's not meant to be this way, and that God's word offers hope in the middle of, of this mess. God's perspective on motherhood, which is often portrayed, by the way, very negatively, um, uh, uh, oppressive, like Handmaid's Tale, kind of oppressive, restrictive uh, repression, um, um, is anything but those things, is liberating and powerful, profound and beautiful. Now, to show you what God says about being a mum and, and, and what it looks like to be a, a mum, according to the Bible. What we want to do, what we're going to do is a, a quick character study of not just the most famous mum in the Bible, but the most famous mum um, in human history. We're going to look a little bit at um, the life and, and, and faith of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. And my aim here is, by doing that, to see a couple of things. Firstly, what can we learn about Mary, uh, about God, their relationship? What do we learn for ourselves? Secondly, to use that as a critique on society's view of motherhood, but finally, um, to see how the Bible's perspective on motherhood points all of us, mums, not mums, whoever you are, uh, to something much bigger going on in life, something uh, much deeper, much, much more meaningful, even than motherhood, believe it or not. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that we're not distracted, um, your stomach isn't grumbling too much, that I'm going to be short. No, I'm going to pray that uh, God would speak as he, as he speaks, that we would listen to him. So will you bow your heads and, and I'll pray, and then we'll look at the Bible. Uh, Heavenly Father, Thank you that you are a speaking God, you are not silent. And we pray uh, this morning um, that even though mother, uh, Mother's Day, motherhood is a topic of such emotion for many of us, great joy but also great pain, um, delight but also devastation for, for many of us, uh, that in the midst of this space um, you would, you would um, uh, open our ears to hear you properly, that we would not be distracted. Help us, Lord to focus on what you were saying so we do not leave here the same but change, transformed, um, to love and serve your son more and more. And in his name uh, we pray. Amen. Now, um, the place we're going to be going to uh, today is Luke chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible there, open that up. Most of the verses, because we've got visitors today, will be on the screen. However, normally we don't do that. So if you don't have a Bible, make sure you pick one up from the barrels uh, afterwards. Now, let's start with just a bit of a, a flyby of Mary. Because um, Mary uh, is a figure who I reckon is not just one of the best known and best loved figures of human history, but, and you might be completely unaware of this, also one of the most controversial figures uh, in humanity. Now, believe it or not, um, all the information we have about Mary comes from here, comes from in the Bible. There is no extra biblical information. And yet when you read the Bible, um, you notice something. She's present in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but she's not a dominant figure. Um, she's on the sideline. She's there, certainly, but she's not the dominant figure, obviously. Um, she appears once in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. 
when they replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias. After that, though, she, she disappears. What I'm getting at is that the information we have about Mary, actually, well, we don't have that much. There's a bunch of things we don't know about her. The Bible doesn't tell us. It's not relevant for us. And yet, despite the brevity of information, Mary... Mary is the most beloved woman in human history. Well, that's according to the internet anyway. Mary's name, 2,000 years on from her life, is echoed uh, around the world. Every country in the world would have people who know her and love her. her the representation of her image um, is on you know, tattoos, necklaces, statues, uh, jewellery, all sorts of things. Um, she's a beloved figure by billions of, billions of people. Now, I want to say there's, there's something beautiful about that, isn't there? There's something absolutely right about that. It's a wonderful thing. However, there's also something troubling about it. Because unfortunately, what has happened is that the reason why Mary is beloved is because from early on in the Christian church, after, um, so Christianity started with a very, very small group of people in Jerusalem, by 300 years on, it's the biggest religion in the world. And around that time frame, there began to become a bit of a, a personality cult develop around Mary. And, and probably due to the brevity of the information, the lack of a lot of information, people began to attach rumours, uh, stories, myths and fairy tales on to Mary. And, and these rumours were repeated over and over again. And what has resulted is, when you and I think about Mary, it's very, very possible, in fact probable, um, that what we think about with Mary is not what the Bible says, which is actually the only eyewitness factual accounts we have, but rather it's very possible that what we think of is um, one of the rumours or myths or fairy tales. Um, and the, the problem with that is um, adding to the truth about Mary doesn't add to her but takes away from her. It doesn't help us see what God is doing in Mary's life. It doesn't let us understand her, but it actually makes it very murky and difficult. When we add, it takes away. Let me illustrate this. Um, in, in the world of art... I'm very passionate about. In the world of art, um, art restoration is big business. What that means is there's old paintings, old sculptures, and that, you know, they disintegrate over time with whatever, wear and tear. And there's a whole field of artists whose job it is, is to paint over um, old artwork very gently, very carefully. Like the Mona Lisa, to paint over it very carefully. We don't notice it, but the idea is that we can um, see it in its original form, that it's not dulled over time. However, um, Art restoration is a very serious business. When it gets in the wrong hands, when the wrong people do it, the results are devastating, catastrophic. And I, I've, I've scoured the world to find the three worst bits of art restoration in human history. I've got the photos for you. Okay, so let me show you the first one. So here's a sculpture of Mary. Here's, you know, someone saw it, they thought, you know what, I need to work on this, I'm going to fix it, and this was the result. It looks a bit like Adrian, don't you reckon? Okay, number two, number two. Now, this one was very recent, actually. An old Italian nonna um, found this. She was in her church, and she's like, oh, I'm going to fix this up. You know, it goes there. And the result, again, Adrian, what are you doing here? I just. But the worst art restoration in the world is actually of Mary. And here's the first part a sp- Spanish church, there it was. Um, I think, again, an old nonna got to work on it. Um, and the result, now, just hold that there. Hold that there. Um, adding has done what? It's taken away. 
It's made our ability to see the reality very difficult. We can't see the reality. And yet if we hadn't seen the original, we'd have nothing to compare it with. And so we'd be convinced that this on the right, <laughs> this on the right was the original. That that's what she looked like. Now, I've got to say, the left isn't what she looks like either. But nonetheless, we think that's what the painting looks like. You know, you... When we add to the Bible, we don't improve it. We take away from it. You know, people over years have, have, have said all sorts of things about Mary. Things that are well-intentioned. Things that the desire is to make us love her more. And yet, well, here's the tragic truth. The tragic truth is by doing, they get distracted from reality. And the reality is more beautiful, more powerful, more profound than you could possibly imagine. The truth about Mary is far more beautiful than any myth, fairy tale, uh, or... Or, or made-up invention. So what I want to do today is get a little bit of cotton wool out and go back to the picture and just dab at it. Take off the overlayer. You with me? Take off the overlayer of the pictures, the myths we have about Mary, and get to the reality. Because as I said, there is profound implications for all of us uh, that we see in the lives of Mary. Now, as I said, most of the information, all of the information we have about Mary is from the Bible. A lot of it is actually right here in Luke chapter 1. Have the Bible a passage in front of you. Luke chapter 1 gives us much of the information that we know about Mary. We're introduced to her with a lot of the information that you would know from Christmas. Mary is from Nazareth, a poor countryside town. She's young, we say young, probably in her teenage years, but we don't know for certain. She's engaged to a man called Joseph. She's a virgin. When? Oh, I don't want to ruin the story. You'll have to come back at Christmas and then you can... No. Um, then the angel Gabriel appears to her, tells her that God has found favor. God favors her. He, he, he's blessed her. She's greatly blessed. And she is to be pregnant. Um, not through the ordinary means, but through the Holy Spirit. Um, and the baby will not be an ordinary baby, but will be a, a human, but the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, um, the one who will reign and rule. Now, fast forward, and most of us know what happens. The stable, the wise men, the star, eventually the cross and the empty tomb. But before we get there, what I want to do is show you an interaction Mary has with her cousin Elizabeth. So come with me to verse um, verse 26 is where we're going to start, uh, and, and onwards, at uh, verse 39, I should say. Mary left Nazareth and went to visit with her cousin Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth would um, later become the mother, in fact, at the same time, pregnant at the same time, the mother of John the Baptist. Those guys, Jesus and John the Baptist, are cousins. Mary um, is much younger than Elizabeth. Elizabeth uh, is also pregnant, miraculously. Mary goes to visit her. And look at chapter 1, verse 42. What I want you to notice is the reaction Elizabeth gives her, first of all, the reaction Elizabeth gives her when Mary enters into the room. Look what she says. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. Now, blessed, which is the exact same as the word blessed. They're not different words. They're the same word. Blessed is a word which, which means receive the kindness of. A pretty traditional thing, you know, for religious people, even non-religious people, to see someone pregnant and go, oh, you know, bless, God bless you, that's wonderful. You've received the favor of God. But here's what I want you to take notice of. When you realize the historical context that Mary is living in, you realize that this is an absolutely staggering thing from an older woman, family member, to say to another woman, a younger woman who's pregnant. Why? Mary is what? Unmarried, pregnant, poor, alone, in a culture where people who commit adultery were often executed under the punishment of death. Mary has left 
Nazareth while pregnant, her hometown. Why do you think she's done that? We're not told. And I don't want to presume on Scripture. But certainly, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think Mary has left Nazareth because of the shame that her pregnancy has brought to herself and her family. Do you see that, possibly? She's visiting a cousin for three months while pregnant. You know, this thing still happens today. How do you think Mary would be feeling? How would you feel if you were in her situation? Seriously. Let me offer some emotions that we might lean towards. Frustration, anxious, sad, upset. How about angry? Angry at God. There's Mary. She's minding her own business. She's a godly teenager. We know that much. She loves the Bible. We know that much. What has she done? Nothing. And then, boom, pregnant. Surely, we would think, of all people who can shake their fists at God, that would be Mary. But what we see unfold next is Mary's response, a famous response. It's titled, Mary's Song. She responds in song. And what I want you to do as we look at this part of Mary's response to this pregnancy and to the greeting of Elizabeth is I want you to pay attention to what these verses tell us, both about Mary, but secondly, about God. So verse 46 is where it kicks off. We're only going to look at the first three verses um, today. So we're really only going to spend our time in these verses. But remember, what is the question? What do these verses tell us about about Mary? I'm going to read it for you, um, and then we'll, we'll think about it. Mary said, in response to Elizabeth, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, hold on. What do we learn about Mary? Mary loves God. Her heart is captured by praise for him, not reluctantly, but rejoicing joyfully. It springs from her, overflows naturally from her, not reluctantly, not by numbers, not by um, trying to impress him, but rather as a response to him, so that rather than being angry with God, she is awestruck. By him, awestruck that he would know her, that he would see her, that he would know who she is. See, Mary's song, and I want you to see this right here. Mary's song is not a song about Mary, is it? It's a song by Mary, but it's a song about God. It's a love song, not a romantic love song. Get that out of your mind. It's, it's a song of someone who loves God singing about God. And that is crucial for us to realize when we get to the truth about Mary because much of the mythology, the, the, um, uh, the fairy tales, the, the rumors about Mary that have emerged that, that actually exist as fact for many, many people, much of those rumors seem to be focused on centralizing Mary's importance to being on par with and sometimes even above that of God. Now, no one would ever say that, of course, but that's exactly what happens. Much of the the mythology about Mary seems to be doing the exact opposite of what Mary herself does. Mary's life is centralized around God. It has God at the center. And yet, when you hear myths about Mary, it's always about how important she is, the incredible things that she has done. You may have heard of some of them. Um, Mary being sinless her whole life. Um, That she was conceived uh, uh, without sin, that she was born, that she never sinned. Um, that she was a virgin after giving birth to Jesus, that she didn't have more children. She, 
She didn't ever have sex. Um, more than that, she didn't die. She ascended to heaven. That today she's a, a mediator between us and God, that you can pray to her to intercede to God on your, on your behalf. Now, those rumours have come out of a place of trying to uplift Mary, but they've done untold damage. Why? Simple. They're not true. Let me be as clear as possible. The Bible never says anything like that about Mary. Not a skerrick, not a whisper. In fact, many of those, and that's just you know, five or six of hundreds, many of those rumours, they actually contradict the truth of the Bible. The tragic result is that the picture that we have of Mary is often the very opposite of the picture of the reality of Mary. We think of Mary as high and, 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 and um, up there on a, par- a parallel level with God and, and with Jesus, and that we, she's this un-understandable, unapproachable, untouchable, just this distant ethereal figure. But the reality that's presented for us in the Bible is not like that at all. Mary's life is absolutely dedicated to God. And she would be devastated at the thought of her being used as an excuse to rob glory from God. Do you see that? She would be devastated at the thought that, that she would steal glory that's reserved only for God. Because she's someone who is humble, who is godly, who is focused on God's glory. Now, that's the negative part. <laughs> Of Mary's reputation. But I do want to point you to what these truths tell us about the reality, the great thing about Mary. See, what is the consequence of the way Mary acts as a result of her love for God? How does Mary act as a result of what she believes? Well, there's many, but there's one in particular I want you to take hold of. Her utter faith and trust in God, her love for God and his plan leads her to being someone with utter, unshakable rock-solid confidence in who she is, in her identity. She's completely secure, because her identity is not defined by the circumstances of her life, as extraordinary as they were, but by her trust in the reality of God as told in his word and his promises. And I want to say to you that that is in direct contrast and contradiction to the crisis we find around motherhood. Now, I'm about to do something very dangerous And that is, I'm going to speak about motherhood. Why is that dangerous? Well, it's not just dangerous because my mum's sitting right there, okay? Um, But it's dangerous because I'm not a mother. But I do want to say, um, I don't think, one, you have to be something to talk about something. I don't think that's a thing. Um, But also, what I want to try and do is show you what God says about motherhood. And I'm trying to avoid myself of my opinion, but try to show you, well... God offers a truth about motherhood here. Um, but in order to get there, we do need to think, I think, clearly and honestly about the situation mothers find themselves in. I think there's one word above all others um, that summarises the plight of mothers today, modern motherhood, and that word is pressure. <laughs> pressure. Um, it comes from within. It's internal, but it's also external. On one hand, um, society, in a beautiful, wonderful way, lords motherhood. Um, says motherhood is the most incredible thing and the most beautiful thing, the most natural thing. And indeed, there's something about seeing a mum with a baby, you know, young baby, and there's a beautiful understanding of, I've never loved like this before. This is incredible. But what can then often happen is the mother 
becomes utterly consumed with her child, so much so that her identity is entirely wrapped up in the child, the child's success, the child's um, uh, effectiveness in life, what the child does. Now, what that leads to, of course, is um, a road to misery because the child cannot bear the weight of that expectation. They will let you down. But not only that, the mother can't bear the weight of that expectation. Suddenly, all your motherhood becomes about is comparisons and and comparing it and feeling inadequate. Um, Feeling as if your child is not good enough, your your motherhood is not good enough, that you're failing at what you do, that somehow you're you're not doing a good enough job. Now, you've got that going on 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 one hand. On the other hand, you have the constant call from culture for everyone to be obsessed with career. Now, by career, I don't mean work. Work is the paid employment. But by career, what I mean is um, the desire to find your identity in what you do for a job. Men are more guilty of careerism than women by a millionfold. Okay? However, because over the last century, women have had to fight hard for an equal place at the workforce alongside men with equal opportunities and pay... With that has brought all types of negative consequences for women. Now, now let me just make it very clear. Equality between men and women is ingrained in the Bible from the very beginning. The idea that a man and woman can do the same job for different pay is anathema. It is horrible. Equality between men and women is a Christian principle. But what's become clear is that the pressure women are then put under by corporations and by work by themselves, by, uh, by others, by bosses, to return to work before they want to, because otherwise they'll miss out and they won't get on the promotion scale, or um, they put themselves under that pressure, means that women are forced into doing things they don't want to do before they want to do them. Not all women, but often this happens. Um, because if they don't, they're told, you'll miss out on the opportunities of work and that will somehow affect you, somehow make you inferior. Now, you have those pressures going on all the time. And I want to add a third one, though, but it seems a bit light. But I do want to add it. And then you've got the pressure of um, social media. Okay? Now, why is that a thing? Well, on social media, what women see, and I know men see this as well, but it does affect women more than men, I think, um, is picture after picture, post after post of smiling, um, pretty, um, fit mother workers. Um, with beautiful children, all who seem to have wonderful teeth. It's always about teeth. <laughs> nice hair, usually bowl cuts for some reason. It's American, I guess. And these are women who are, who are Fortune 500 CEOs. They've got five kids. They cook healthy meals for everyone. And they, they also compete in triathlons competitively okay, around the world. You can have it all. But if you don't, what's wrong with you? You can do it all. If you don't, you're a failure. It eats away at... at the identity of a woman, more and more and more. Now, that's, that's a terrible burden for anyone to bear, let alone the fact that mothers, by very nature of having children, work six times, six, the equivalent of, a, of six full-time jobs with children and husbands half the time. So what do we take from the interaction that God has with Mary gives us a different perspective on life, that can actually offer hope in the midst of of the mess. Well, it's it's right there. It's one word, actually, that I want you to focus on, right in the middle of of this passage. And it's something that Mary says about herself. 
from now on, she says, all generations will call me blessed. And I think that word blessed is the key to understanding not just the biblical perspective of motherhood, but also God's perspective on life. Now remember, what does the word blessed mean? Well, it means receive the kindness of. In the context here, it's, it's Mary receiving the kindness of God. One of the labels that's attached to Mary often is that she's the blessed um, Virgin Mary. Now, she is the blessed Virgin Mary when she has absolutely right. Um, but blessed is not a title that refers to Mary's amazingness. It's a title that refers to God's favour, God's grace, God's mercy, God's kindness. It's not saying, this is not Mary saying, from, all, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Whew, I'm amazing. Look what she says next. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Mary has been blessed by God. The question is how? There's two ways. Two staring us right in the face. Number one, she's pregnant with the Son of God. Now, all of us would acknowledge that is indeed an enormous blessing. Despite her, her impoverished situation, her anonymous situation, God has seen her. She's, she's carrying God's Son. She's a righteous woman who's found favour with God. That is a blessing that Mary receives. But check this out. As, as high, as, as incredible a blessing as that is, it's not the peak of the Everest of blessing. Not for Mary. There is a higher blessing on display for us that Mary, Mary has received. It's right at the start, she says this. And Mary said, how does she begin? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Mary rejoices, the core of her rejoicing, the heartbeat of her glory to God is because God has saved her. Verse 50, shown her mercy just like he has always done. See, just like every human being who's ever lived, Mary is a, was a sinner, a rebel against God, deserving of God's wrath. If Mary died outside of salvation, she needed God's judgment. She needed a saviour. Don't take my word for it. Take Mary's word for it. God is my saviour. And yet she knows something no one else does at that very moment, doesn't she? What does she know? She knows that this baby in her tummy will not just be her child, but will be her king. Will not just be her son, will be her saviour. That is the peak of blessing that Mary receives. Now, how do I know that? Well, flip over a few pages to Luke chapter 11. Come with me to Luke chapter 11. I want to show you a, a, a staggering um, interaction that Jesus has. Jesus is in the middle of his, his preaching ministry through Galilee. Chapter 11, verse 27 is where we're going. And, and as he finishes preaching and he takes a breath, um, let me read to you what happens here. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed, blessed, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Talk about a backhanded compliment. You can't just say nice things about him. It's always going to, that always happens. No, no. Is she right? Yes. It is a blessing that Mary has given birth and nursed Jesus. Absolutely. But listen to what Jesus says. But he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word 
and obey it. Jesus is not saying, my mum is not blessed by being my mum. We know that she is. What is he saying? He's saying that the most important blessing Mary receives is not to be his mother. The most important blessing the disciples receive is not to be his closest friend and and apostle, not to do miracles in his name. The most important blessing that Mary receives is to have Jesus as her saviour. God as her father, that she would trust in what he has done on her behalf. You know, for mothers, we look here for identity and here for identity. You're pulled this way and that. The pressure is enormous, saying your value is here, your worth is there. You don't do that, failure. Don't do that, failure. The constant self-talk telling you again and again and again, you're failing, you're failing, you're failing. And yet from it we spring and just try and find it somewhere else. No, 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 listen here. The greatest blessing that God can give anyone is not perfect children with nice teeth and bowl cuts and an Instagram profile. It's not your ability to juggle work-life ratio balanced perfectly. It's not to be a CEO of a company, to, to, to have your own reality TV show, to be admired by other mothers. Great. But you can do all of those things and still miss the main event, which is, is Jesus your saviour? Now the question is, let's just press pause there for a moment. Um, I'll say the obvious. How How can that possibly be true? And indeed we can see why people struggle with it, because... um, what we're saying here is that even though Jesus and Mary have this you know, bloodline connection, Jesus says that a stranger to him who trusts in him is more blessed by God than Mary herself. How could that possibly be true? In our culture and community, in our world, in every, in every culture and community, family line, your, your um, proximity to power and prestige builds up your own. Look at the coronation last week. Everyone in there with their own ticket. You know, these are really important people. They're close to, to power and prestige. If you're the, the mother of someone who really makes it, surely in the world, that is the peak. That is the absolute top of the pop. You cannot do more than that. So how could Jesus possibly say that a stranger, someone who, who's never met him, and in fact, then later in John, at the very end of John's gospel with, with, with Thomas, Jesus says, you're blessed by believing by you believe by seeing. Blessed more are those who believe without seeing. Jesus says we can be more blessed by Mary because we believe without seeing. How could that possibly be true? There's only one possible way. And I think it's a way that captures Mary in a way that it unlocks everything for us. The only way that you and I could be more blessed than even Mary herself is. If this life doesn't end in death. You see, if this life ends in death, if this is all there is, then being related by blood to the Son of God who can do miracles and walk on the water and do all that sort of stuff, surely that's the most impressive thing that you could possibly do. But if eternal life stretches ahead of all of us, if there is a life that stretches beyond the grave, that goes on forever and ever, then what matters most in life is not who you're related to. What matters most in life is where you're going when you die and how you will get there. 
And that's what Mary knew. From, from when Jesus is in her stomach, this child is the saviour. He's my saviour. I need to trust in him. It's the only way. And 30 odd years after she gave birth to him, Jesus then fulfilled this. He died on a cross and rose from the grave and promises that whoever trusts in him can be saved. Now, what does that mean for you and I today? Well, what it means is that no matter what, above all else, what matters most about you is not that you're a mother or not a mother. What matters most about you is if God is your father. Let me try and illustrate this for you. Um, around 15 years ago, I, was, uh, I used to live in Townsville. Anyone here from Townsville? Anyone? Thank goodness. Okay, they're worse than Kiwis, honestly. Um, I was up in Townsville, and uh, I was uh, kayaking in the ocean uh, near Magnetic Island, if you know where that is. Um, and that's a bit of a joke, because I swim like a brick. Okay, I'm a terrible swimmer. Uh, and yet, for some reason, um, I decided this is a good idea. So me and a friend, we went out on this kayak, and um, we, were, we were kayaking away. But for whatever reason... you probably because my skill at kayaking is up there with my skill at swimming, um, it wouldn't work. It just wasn't going. Like It was just like creeping along. So I had the bright idea, I know what I'll do. I'll jump into the water and push the kayak. I'll then swim. You see the floor? I'll swim to catch up with the kayak. I can't swim. But I get in the kayak and I get out of the kayak, get in the water, and because of my life jacket, it's too big, I can't reach the kayak. You know? So I go, okay, zoop, throw it in the kayak. Now, I'd been doing a lot of push-ups at the time, and I pushed it and went, oh, 5, 10, 15, 20 metres. And then I realised, wait, that's the kayak. Like, I start trying to swim after it, but I can't catch up to it. I call out to my friend, turn around, but they can't. It's a two-person kayak. They can't turn around. And at this moment, I turn to the shore. My heart drops. Because um, I, I realise the shore is three, 400 metres away. And I can't swim three metres, let alone 300 metres. So I, I start trying to swim for shore. I, I swim a little bit. I'm not going very far. I see people on the shore, but it's Magnetic Island, which is like a party island. They're all drunk. And I'm like, help, help. And they don't see me. You know, they don't hear me. I start to swim more, and I'm not going anywhere. And my head starts... <gasps> bobbing up and down underwater, life flashing before my eyes. Now, this is before I'm a Christian. I'm probably 25, 26. Um, and my life is flashing before my eyes. And I have this moment where I, I, I give up. I don't know if you've ever been... I, I stop. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to die. And I sink. And I sink all the way to the bottom of the ocean floor. And I feel the sand, the soft sand. And then I stand up, and the water comes up to my nipples. <laughs> I'm drowning in 110 centimetres of water. <laughs> What's the point? Can you imagine what an utter tragedy it would be for me to have drowned when salvation was there for me the whole time? And yet, because I couldn't see it, I didn't understand it. I, I didn't take it. I looked for salvation anywhere except the one place it would be found. Now, at the very moment, right there, as I'm drowning, what is the one thing that matters above all else? 
rescue. My bank account, my popularity, my work, my career, my kids, my rescue, life. My dear friends, do you see it? The reality of life that we see from Mary, and we see this because of her honour of her son Jesus, is that one day everything that we have and everyone that we know will be stripped away. Your career, your money, your success, your failure, your, your, your role as a parent, your role as a spouse, the only thing that matters is your relationship with God. And the only way that you can have a relationship with God is if you trust in Jesus. Mary's identity is secure, not because she is the mother of Jesus. Her identity of secure, her trust in God is rock solid because she trusts in God. If you missed that, well, nothing else matters. Now, what does that all mean for us here today? Well, I, I want to try and speak to uh, the different groups that we have uh, for mums and, and for, for others here today. For, for those of you here who are mums, young or old, um, I want to say, uh, we're not sa- I'm not saying the pressure is on you in, uh, because um, you know, I'm scared of you. <laughs> I am a little bit, but that's not, I am scared of you a little bit, but that's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because it's true. The burden on mothers, the weight of expectation that others put on you, that you put on yourself, is huge. It's very possible to feel that you're drowning amongst it. But hear the word of God speak to you. The most important thing about you is not your children, you are more than your children. You have a value and a worth far greater than your ability to have children. Your children matter to you. They matter to God, even more importantly. It's beautiful and amazing that you love your children, but that's not why you matter. You mattered before you had kids. The most important thing about you is not that you're a mother. It's whether God is your father. And if God is your father, your identity is secure and you are liberated from pursuing your identity in career or in perfect parenting, both of which are cups filled with salt water. They'll never give you what you want. Now, for those here today who are not mothers but would love to be, for those here today who have lost children, who are burdened by choices that you made in the past in this issue that haunt you, who are estranged from your children, who have lost your mothers, who are estranged from your mothers. You are not your failures. You are not your inability to have children. You are not your mistakes of the past. You are not the relationship that you share that's broken and damaged. If you are in Christ, then the most important thing about you is not what you've done, it's not where you've been, it's not what you've said, it's not what you can't unsay. The most important thing about you is that God is your father and Jesus is your brother who died and rose from the dead to bring you into his family. And my dear friends, that is reality in Christ. That is who you are. Our job now for the rest of our lives, remember it. Eternity frees us 
you see. It frees us to focus on what matters most. It frees us to find our happiness today on circumstance and situation. It frees us to be filled with anger and remorse and self-pity when things don't go our way because we know today is not our destination. It's preparation for our destination. Our destination is eternal life with God forever. I'm going to finish by praying, but let me just say two things very quickly. One, um, if you're not a Christian here today, I'd love to enc- or you don't know where you're at with God, actually, you're just confused or not sure, I'd love to encourage you to come along to Explaining Christianity on Tuesday night. Um, it'd be wonderful to see you there. But secondly, it might be that today is the day you want to pray to God um, to enter into relationship with Him as your Father. And so I want to pray for you that you'd do that today. And for the rest of us, I want to pray that we will find our identity in Christ. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift you give to us and we pray above all else for the greatest blessing you would bestow upon this earth, your Son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to earth to rescue us from the wrath that we deserve for the way that we've lived. Lord God, thank you for Jesus. Help us to remember continually our identity being in him, through him and for him. That we are not our children or our lack of children that we are who you say we are, your children. And Lord, for those here who are not yet Christians, but who want to be, I pray, Lord, that you would give them um, the courage and the, um, the strength to turn to you, to trust in you, to turn from their sin and believe in you now and forever, to follow you. And Lord God, I pray this all in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.